welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the April 2023 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Special thank you again to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, for making it possible for us to be here today. I'm Rimley Crow, and today I am joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Jeff Rollman, Michael Caduce, and Dr. Bill Toon. And as a reminder to our audience today, we're going to be reviewing an article called Redefining and Categorizing Emergency Medical Service Opioid-Related Incidents in Massachusetts, which is published in the journal called Addiction. Uh, and as always, this discussion will be paired with an article written by our very own columnists, Dr. Tony Fernandez and Michael Caduce in EMS World. The column is called Journal Watch. I encourage all of you listeners to go check it out at emsworld.com under the category of education and training. And I want to thank all of you for joining the Journal Club today. Uh, remind you that you can use the chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments as we go. And we'll be bringing those into the conversation. All right. So with that, we can go ahead and kick off. Uh, I think this is a really relevant and important and timely topic. We talk about the opioid epidemic a lot. We've seen some relatively new treatment options out there, things that we can talk about as we get into the discussion of this paper. But first, perhaps it makes sense to talk about why the authors even really dug into this. Why did it matter the question that they took on? So their goal was to create an EMS opioid-related incident framework, so a way of grading severity around these types of events. Um, and this is actually really important for quite a few reasons, in my opinion. We can hear from the other panelists too. But one of them is that when we describe opioid responses, there's no clear standard for that. And the incidents get counted in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different classifications, one of them being, oh, we'll just count all records where naloxone was administered. And that can be problematic for a couple of different reasons. Sometimes uh, protocol is for naloxone to be administered to patients who are unresponsive and they may not actually be having an overdose event. Uh, other reasons, there's bystander administered naloxone now, and so that changes the landscape of how these events get reported and how we count them. Um, but then at the public health level, when we're counting opioid-related events, often they're only looking at fatalities, so events that resulted in death, or uh, at least events where the patient was transported to a hospital. And we know that in EMS, that's not always the case. There are protocols in place for safe treatment in place and leaving the patient where they are versus we'd be undercounting if we only looked at transports to an ED. So all in all, I found this to be a really interesting and timely topic in terms of how should we describe this to get a more complete picture of the public health aspect to the opioid epidemic. Yeah, I agree. This was an interesting paper, and it was interesting the way that they went about um, categorizing these uh, for their state. I thought that, uh, and we'll dive into this when we talk about the methods, but uh, the way that they they incorporated 
folks from different backgrounds and all within some EMS realms. I thought that that was important to how they categorize and determine what fits where. I think incredibly um, applicable too to our frontline um, care staff. We divide STEMI, whether it's an anterior or an inferior, and our treatment changes based on that physiology. So understanding what type of opioid overdose, we can better understand the treatment. And so if we can get the frontline providers the right treatment for the right patient, we're going to see better outcomes. Absolutely. And it probably makes sense to talk a little bit about the context where this study took place. And Jeff, I know you did a little bit of your own research before we spoke about, you know, what does the context look like in Massachusetts prior to this work in this classification system? So perhaps we could take a moment or two and you can walk us through a little bit of what you saw when it came to opioid related events in Massachusetts. Sure, of course. Thank you. And yeah, definitely agree that this article uh, is really interesting paper and really interesting research looking at the full gamut of opioid-related incidents. I mean, our EMS data is so rich that most of our calls are fortunately not the actual deaths, those fatal overdoses. But on the public health epidemiology side, there is uh, most of the attention is driven just at those deaths. Of course, we do really good data on those, the ones that don't result in death, uh, much harder to capture. But just want to show the continuing problem and how serious these overdose deaths are, um, that the problem has not relented uh, throughout you know, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and onwards. Consistently, hundreds of opioid overdose deaths each month in Massachusetts. We move along to the next figure. Um, so just a couple of figures so we can just see that this is rising. So the study period, I believe, is 2013 to 2020. So just looking at that context, uh, opioid overdose deaths more than double during that time period. And we know that uh, opioids are a big problem, but pretty shocking to see just how, um, how many deaths there are. But uh, some of the background of where these deaths are coming from. Next slide again. Um, so more we could see that these rates of opioid overdose deaths again, higher and higher. Um, and these most recent data, like from 2021 and 2022, are probably underestimates, since it does take a couple of years, can take actually months to get those toxicology reports back. It can be unclear why someone died, even though we might have obvious um, suspect something out in the field. We're not quite sure when it comes to that final cause of death, the medical examiner report but uh, just those continued increases. And then the next slide. One more slide. Yes, and then here, this is something that probably is not a surprise to uh, any EMS providers, but just the role of fentanyl. So fentanyl has been around, it's been around for decades, but was not uh, initially the primary cause of most of the opioid overdose deaths. But now we can see that even though there are other substances involved, uh, for example, cocaine, alcohol, uh, fentanyl is involved in uh, vast majority of cases. So more than 90% of opioid related deaths, even though there are a lot of other substances that patients may be taking, fentanyl uh, is extremely deadly. We hear about in the news and the uh, medical examiner data in Massachusetts definitely shows this. And then finally, the last slide. And here we could just see this increase 
um, that, yeah, fentanyl is present as of 2021 in 93% and more than 93% of all opioid-related deaths. So here's some of that context, I guess, uh, before we go into the paper, since unfortunately with these folks, it was all too late. But fortunately, EMS often is able to get there in time. A bystander can get there in time and intervene. Um, so we're, I mean, EMS is doing great work out there every day, but I just want to show how much of a problem this continues to be, even with uh, widespread Narcan nowadays in the hands of late providers, many first responders. Um, but here's a little bit of that context and look forward to diving into this more. Thanks, Jeff. I think this is important context to have. We talk about how important study setting is when we're interpreting the results from research. And in this case, we take a look at this and think at our local systems, do we see numbers that reflect these sort of trends? And I think by and large, that answer is yes. These increases that we're seeing are not isolated to just Massachusetts or anything like that. This is a, a nationwide trend that we've been watching for some time. And we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic how the deaths shifted, and that's an important piece we'll get to when we get into the results and discussion of this work. But I think it is important to have in mind that you know, this is not an isolated setting, and this is definitely a bigger public health burden and something that is worth digging into. So the authors did a very good job at setting up the importance behind the study and why we should think about counting not just overdose and fatality, but taking a more holistic view of what opioids are, are causing when it comes to uh, EMS encounters and the types of things we should be prepared for as EMS clinicians to treat. So with that, I think it makes sense to go ahead and let's start chatting some methods. Usually we let Tony do this alone, but we'll help out today. So I think it is important to talk a little bit about what kind of study this was and when it took place and how, how we got to this data. So Tony, I'll turn it to you. Yeah, so this was really interesting. So, <clears throat> excuse me, they looked at data from 2013 to 2020, as I mentioned earlier, and they worked with uh, a host of EMS physicians and addiction specialists to come up with some inclusion and exclusion criteria to help categorize the different types of opioid-related incidents, they call them. Um, and they, what they did was they, they looked at things like, and I'm going to pull up some of their supplements here, um, they looked at things that throughout not just the narrative, not just the, the definitive fields, but through the narrative, uh, and they looked at chief complaints, uh, secondary chief com secondary complaints, um, and they tried to come up with different buckets. So for things like uh, they came up with five different categories, and these categories were things like uh, obvious death or, or DOA, uh, acute overdose, and in intoxication, opioid intoxication, withdrawal, and then other opioid-related incidents. And they, they made a note that some of these were things like uh, suicide attempts or where they had multiple different types of, of substances on board. There's a couple of things worth highlighting in there too. I really liked that they made use of the free text components in the electronic health record. So they looked at things like chief complaint, which we know is just a, a box where you type in the patient's complaint. Uh, and they not only looked for common words, and I think they did a great job at defining what those words would be in the context of their practice setting. And they make a note of, hey, what's regionally you know, used here in dialect, you may want to consider adding different words if you're going to repeat this study somewhere else. Uh, but to give an example, they had 
opioid several different ways with common misspellings, flipping the O and the I. I know I've done that one late at night before. So I, I think they had a very robust way of trying to track down records that should likely be included in the study. And then those categories that you mentioned, Tony, are really important because this is they called it a cascading category. So they started with patients who came into this dead on arrival bucket, which they classified as having no resuscitation attempted other than potentially naloxone and that there was not transport of these patients. Then in the acute overdose, which is what we traditionally think of when we say, oh, we're going to count opioid encounters. Uh, it'll be interesting in the results to see how often that bucket was hit, but the acute overdose where the patient would die without medical intervention. And they talk about it in detail in those appendices and how they determined that death was likely without intervention. Uh, and then in the intoxication, the, the distinguishing feature between overdose and intoxication was that the patient would have likely survived without that medical intervention, uh, but was experiencing effects related to opioid use. So they described things like pinpoint pupils and other signs and symptoms indicative of using opioids. Uh, the last bucket of, well, the second to last bucket of withdrawal is something that I, I really want to dig into further as we describe what those symptoms are like and how naloxone can create some of those symptoms and then what treatment options are available. We are seeing a lot of innovative programs. I know, Jeff, you work at one of the institutions where there's a really innovative program in this space. Uh, and then that other catch-all bucket, it'll be interesting to see in future work if we're going to be able to tease that out further and, and say, you know, are there other categories within this bucket we should be paying attention to? So I really like that you called attention to those. And now I, I would like to talk about the analysis on this. I think they did a really robust approach to how, one, you talked about how they defined this with not, you know, just one person in a room coming up with the answer, but they had a team of experts sit down and test this and try it. But then what did they do to get to their end result? How did they test this out in the real setting? Yeah, so that was interesting. So they had a, a team of an, an EMT, a paramedic and emergency physician uh, who randomly looked at 100 uh, records, opioid related incident records, and tried to categorize them. Uh, and the, these folks, uh, they, they read these records and they where they matched, at least two uh, of the reviewers agreed then they were able to categorize it at, and, and that level of severity. Um, they did note that there were about seven where there was not a match. Um, and they ended up uh, removing those cases from the analysis when they couldn't, couldn't actually have a match. So they were able to have this match with 93% of the time. And they looked at, they didn't just look at, um, at the individual individuals they actually did some some statistics behind it and they ran uh some tests to see about interrelated reliability as well so i thought that um it was a, a pretty robust method to go through and read 100 narratives among three folks and to to try and see how how the agreement between these folks who were reviewing these Yeah, and I think that assessing the agreement is always an interesting and important piece. And, you know, I promise we wouldn't get too nerdy, but talking about exactly how they use that. They used Gwet's agreement, which is a good approach for this paper. Um, and I don't want to spill the beans on results, but I, I think it was really important to do that manual work. And it was surely no small undertaking to go through all of these, you know, not once, but twice different reviewers and look at 
is this is our computer algorithm, which they programmed into SAS, performing as well as our human algorithm and looking when there was a discrepancy to see who was right. Sometimes the computer can be right and we miss something as the manual reviewer. So I thought this was a very robust approach to building out these cascading categories. And uh, I'm excited to dive into the results, but I'll pause here and see if any of our other panelists want to comment on anything we may have missed in the method section. I was just going to make a quick comment about the system that they have of the reviewers that the one EMP, the one paramedic and the EM physician. I thought it was great to see that actually EMS providers were involved in this research and were analyzing it. I mean, as we know, we've seen many papers and EMS docs are great at getting their name out there at being involved in research and many of these studies that I've seen have typically been physicians who are analyzing and making these decisions. And maybe they might include one EMS provider, but for the most part, again, it's physicians. So seeing that two, two of three of these reviewers were actually EMS providers, I, I thought uh, was great to see. And then just thinking more about it, I mean, realizing that a lot of these patients are probably not even being transported. Uh, so we know that refusals are becoming more and more common with this population. And it definitely makes sense that the frontline providers that are gonna be out there in the field who are deciding, hey, is this a acute overdose or is this something that's more mild, more minor that maybe doesn't, that you know, patient who maybe doesn't need to be transported uh, that makes sense that it's actually that frontline EMT or paramedic who's looking over these narratives and looking over these PCRs since we're out there making those decisions and trying to get our patients navigated to the right place. So it's great to see that frontline EMS provider involvement, which is not seen enough in EMS research. That's yeah. a good plug, Jeff. I like that. <laughs> I, do, I agree that it, it was really cool that they agreed with each other so often, right? Um, and we'll get to that in the methods, but it's uh, or the results. But uh, yeah, having having folks, the EMTs, the paramedics, the emergency physicians, all see the records the same way. I think that's a positive sign. I agree. And I think it is a good call. It's a good plug for getting more EMS clinicians involved in research. I mean, that's very selfish on my side, but I've certainly lived the world, you know, even I am certified as an EMT, but I'm not in the software every single day and having people who are have opened my eyes to some elements that, oh, I would have interpreted it this way. Or, you know, if I saw a patient, this would have been my approach to documenting it and finding out, oh, there's definitely variance in that and being aware of it allows you to have a more robust analysis and a, an ultimate ultimately more reliable findings when we do include those who are at the front line collecting these data. Um, and the other point you brought out, I thought was also very important around the patients who are left in place and whether that's patient initiated through, you know, against medical advice or whether there are protocols for leaving patients in place when it's safe and appropriate to do so. I think this highlights sort of something that is shifting the industry around getting the patient the right care in the right place and that that right place is not always the emergency department. In some of these cases, that's not the best place for that patient. And instead, working in place and connecting the patient with more long-term care could be a really great solution. Uh, so I, I think that the authors did a good job at calling that out as well. And, and that's something we'll certainly dive into in those results. I appreciate it too. They looked at cases that were not opioid related, despite the fact they sort of fell into this bucket. They found that there was good reliability of their sort of software detection for 
cases that should fit. We talk about this all the time with stroke scales and are we finding the right people? Are we specific enough while being sensitive enough? And I appreciated that their data, their results are going to be that much more conclusive because they were able to tease out the cases that may have looked like opioid overdoses to somebody, but ended up not actually having anything to do with an opioid overdose. So I feel like our results are a little bit more verified that way. That's a great point. And the stroke scales are a perfect example of a lot of those stroke scales were developed within acute ischemic stroke trials. So we already knew the patient was having a stroke, but then when you take it out in the real world where there's a mimic, there's other conditions that look like stroke, they don't perform as well. I could see if they hadn't taken that full set of real world data, similar problems could have happened. And I thought it was interesting that when they did find cases that filtered in that were not opioid related, it was usually a lack of documentation. They said, there's not enough information here for me to decide that it was or was not opioid related. It wasn't, you know, it just wasn't clear because there wasn't enough detail in that free text narrative section or through the discrete data elements that they were observing. Uh, so that also speaks to the importance of describing the context when it's available. And certainly there's situations where uh, it's unknown to everybody on scene, but having that uh, additional context and use of the free text note is really powerful in a, in a study like this one. All right, drum roll. Let's move into the results. I know we're, we're antsy for that part always, and I am as well. So taking a look at their figure one, and I'm going to pass this off to Jeff to walk us through a little bit of, they started with all of their opioid-related incidents and walk us through how they got to the different categories. And were there any surprises here when you read this one? Sure, yeah. So they started off with that pretty big number. So uh, just over 150,000 uh, opioid-related incidents. And again, this is over that 2013 to 2020 time period. Um, so over almost a decade. And we saw those trends before of what happened uh, with that context. And again, pretty wide bucket of what's included, but they did um, also exclude things here, like this isn't including alcohol overdoses, for example. Uh, that's more detailed in the supplemental appendix. So the first thing with this sort of cascading system is they wanted to figure out of these patients which were DOA or dead on arrival. So these were patients that they didn't take full resuscitation measures. Sometimes they ended up giving Narcan just to see, hey, maybe we'll just one last ditch effort. But for the most part, these patients received minimal treatment, if anything at all. Um, so just off the bat, were they said, and then they took those and that was a bit over 1%. Um, I guess what surprised me is I thought this would be a higher number. And I'm thinking that um, definitely there are certainly likely to be more of these cases, but that they probably just didn't get picked up with this since, again, there are very specific criteria in that free text that had to get here. Um, so there are probably a lot of these came out as cardiac arrests or things that we didn't necessarily have enough information to suspect them as overdoses. Or the other thing I was thinking is police often arrive on scene before we do, they're already roving around and the police might just cancel EMS and realize this is this is not um, anything that EMS is gonna be able to do. So unfortunately, we're not able to capture that data if we're not there to assess that patient. So then moving along, we have the um, remaining 152,863. Um, and then about half of those, a bit over half of those were pulled out as acute overdose. 
And there are a lot of criteria. There's a whole giant table in the appendix as to what exactly this is. But these are things like um, somebody having pale or cool skin, loss of consciousness, or a cardiac arrest that they're actually working, fully resuscitating, as in doing CPR, uh, ventilations, uh, IVIO, pushing epi, kind of following our standard ACLS protocols, not those just DOA and maybe we'll just push Narcan and then walk away. So these are the patients that uh, the authors think that in their opinion, with no intervention, they would not have survived. And then next of the remaining cases, so about 68,000 of them, um, about half of those were classified as intoxicated. So those were patients who were altered to some extent. Um, they may have been hypothermic, uh, may have had pinpoint pupils, uh, there may have been a bit bradycardic, but the authors uh, thought that most of these patients probably would have survived and done okay um, even without that EMS encounter. So definitely ulcer, definitely needed EMS, but not uh, necessarily would have become fatal. And then of those remaining cases, um, of those 36,000 that remain, they were then able to classify just over 5,000 of those as experiencing withdrawal symptoms. So these patients maybe already got Narcan um, and they're now maybe agitated or tachycardic, maybe vomiting, nauseous. There are again a whole list of criteria of what falls in here and very broad just based on what is in the free text, including the misspellings. Um, and then everything that didn't fit into one of those four categories, now that's just going to be a other opioid related uh, so that could be something where maybe mental health or behavioral health issues are involved, but these uh, other ORIs are probably not getting resuscitated. Um, they're not in that acute phase where, you know, we're having to ventilate them, for example. That's more of a catch-all for patients who we definitely think have some opioids in their system, but not quite sure what exactly that is. So I think this cascading system, we often see maybe um, lines were sort of all these categories might be emanating out from one spot, but I think this cascading system is really interesting how they were able to just take the most severe to the less severe and then kind of the catch-all for whatever is remaining to just classify each of these opioid-related cases. I think that's a, a really great walkthrough. And I was also surprised by the small percentage that were pronounced dead on arrival. And it also felt like the acute overdose I expected to be a little bit higher as well, because that's what we're so used to talking about. And I think it goes to show that the author's classification system gave us a different perspective and a different way of thinking about it. There's more to it than just, oh, this is an opioid related call. There's to get the right resource to the right patient at the right time is going to require a more nuanced approach. And I, I particularly liked how they separated that out with, you know, one in five of these patients is not necessarily experiencing an acute overdose, but instead experiencing intoxication. Uh, and something that came into mind during this, and there's probably not a great way of knowing is the effect of naloxone administered prior to arrival. So as soon as I read this, I was wondering, and any of you all can chime in too, if you did see something around how often was naloxone administered by a bystander before EMS got there. And then the person might have been either experiencing symptoms of withdrawal or experiencing just intoxication instead of overdose at that point. But 
the the role of prior to arrival naloxone i think is is key in how we describe this especially as it's becoming more readily available for uh, lay people to hold naloxone as well exactly yeah and actually one of the figures later on looks at narcan not prior to arrival unfortunately that data isn't recorded uniformly and easily but narcan after arrival and uh, definitely interesting to see the different portions of Narcan administration for each of these categories. Absolutely. And so we but, go ahead and take a look at figure two. And so- Sure, so figure, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just gonna turn it to you. Yes, yeah, so I was gonna say figure two just provides that year over year context. So this um, is not very surprising given those figures that we saw before, just looking at opioid mortality, that we saw that opioid mortality roughly doubled uh, from 2013 to 2020. And we could see here also about doubled in terms of our total opioid-related incidents, which makes sense, uh, kind of similar distribution that um, each category is going up. Um, interesting to see that uh, sort of peaks around 2017 and maybe declined a bit, which I would have thought that this would keep on climbing, you know, um, with the time, but uh, there definitely could be different explanations for this. Um, maybe more DOAs that uh, stronger fentanyl and um, becoming more fatal and these, I think, undercounts of DOAs that we talked about, maybe that we're not uh, going on. But I thought that the DOA would get larger as opioid mortality increased over time. But I think that those DOAs are definitely there. We saw that in that other data, just EMS probably isn't responding to some of these calls or isn't knowing enough to classify them as opioid-related DOA. Uh, Jeff, I would have thought too, uh, along the similar lines, the DOAs would have gone up, especially with the increases of fentanyl and the the um, just the severity that that is when people use it. So um, if you look at their, their next charts, I know we'll look at, we saw an increase in overdose. I kept thinking to myself, does this have anything to do with increased incidences of fentanyl being out there? Um, they've made lots of correlations to the pandemic as well, which I thought was helpful, but I kept asking myself in slide number or in um, chart number one there, is that having anything to do with fentanyl? I can only imagine that it probably did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could see again, sort of that little mini peak around the year 2017, but looking at category one, those DOAs, again, much smaller number. This is all in the hundreds, whereas everything else except for four is in the thousands or tens of thousands. But definitely we do see that uh, notable increase uh, from 2018, 2019 to 2020. So it does increase a bit, but I agree. I would have thought to see even more of an increase. I agree. And we saw this trend happen in other settings as well. There were publications showing that uh, fatalities related to opioids increased during the pandemic for a complex web of reasons to include uh, social distancing, people using alone, and uh, the inability to physically access some resources with medication-assisted treatments and, and things like that during those first months of the pandemic were particularly difficult. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how these data change over time as we go through you know, the next phases of this pandemic. 
I also thought table four was interesting. This related to what you had said, Remley, which was how many of these cases are pre-hospital or pre-EMS naloxone, so bystander or, or law enforcement. Um, chart four does look like there's been an increase more recently in the number of, of withdrawals, which if I was an EMS provider, naloxone had been administered, this patient's probably going to look more like they're withdrawing than anything else. So I thought that was, uh, I, I wondered if there was some correlation there, some connection there to the pre-hospital or the, the bystander naloxone campaigns that are going on. And I think that's a key point. And we discussed this on an earlier podcast. We were lucky enough to have Dr. Miramontes talk about the program with buprenorphine. And perhaps, Jeff, you can talk just a little bit about what those programs look like. And for the listeners who haven't already checked this one out, it's in the archives. It's worth listening to because this is a really innovative switch for how we think about the use of naloxone and the effects of using naloxone on the patient. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting graph just showing uh, the cases that have received naloxone. And of course, those acute overdoses, more than 90% of them have, but many, most of the other cases did not. And this is data that probably wouldn't have necessarily been captured through other methods. There been a lot of papers published just on Narcan administration. It's a very crude measure, but uh, this paper definitely was able to dive into those free texts, which was great. And then as far as withdrawal is concerned, it's good to see that most of these patients in withdrawal were not receiving naloxone, since at that point, uh, they probably are breathing okay. They don't have any acute respiratory depression. Um, there's probably not indicated for them to receive naloxone. So that definitely makes sense that somewhere in the range of between 5 and 10% of these patients are getting Narcan. But just because these patients don't need Narcan, they absolutely are at extremely high risk of another subsequent overdose. We know that these patients um, might feel really uncomfortable and want to get uh, that high back to feel more comfortable. And Narcan also uh, is only going to last maybe 30 to 60 minutes, whereas some of their other opioids that might be in their system could last several hours. So these patients definitely need help. Um, being experiencing withdrawal symptoms is not at all comfortable um, seeing those patients that are extremely agitated, tachycardic, tachypneic, nauseous, vomiting, chills, super sick. Um, and that is an excellent opportunity for us to intervene with these patients out in the field. They might not have any acute need for EMS or going to the ER at this point. They're conscious, they're fully alert, they're uh, able to breathe okay, their vital signs might be fine. But these patients are in the excellent opportunity to get treatment. Uh, to get medication-assisted treatment to help treat their opioid use disorder. And there are a number of EMS programs in the country that are administering now buprenorphine, uh, commonly called suboxone. And this is something that is also an opioid, but uh, for the most part, it's extremely difficult to overdose on buprenorphine. And then when this buprenorphine or um, suboxone is in the system, it does bind with those opioid receptors. So it relieves those withdrawal symptoms dramatically and helps those patients feel a lot better and reduces the need for these patients to then want to maybe use fentanyl or whatever else they had been using to cause them to get into the state. But more importantly, getting these patients um, on buprenorphine is an excellent bridge to treatment 
and this is something that can lead to potentially long-term sobriety. Um, Dr. Miramanis, thanks for posting that article. New Jersey, in Camden, New Jersey, uh, they have their suffering uh, tremendously from the effects of the opioid epidemic there, and they were able to equip most of their ambulances with uh, giving out buprenorphine uh, just on their frontline 911 ambulances. And they were able to help out their patients tremendously. I mean, a lot of them didn't necessarily meet criteria or refuse buprenorphine, but a lot of them also accepted buprenorphine and it provided an excellent bridge to treatment. And that's something that we uh, as EMS providers, yes, for public safety, but we're also public health and an excellent opportunity for us to be able to really intervene on these patients when they don't need Narcan and maybe they don't need an ambulance or an ER, but those withdrawal patients, we can definitely help them um, to try to put them on a better path. I think this is a really key space to focus on too, because this is you know, where we have an opportunity to really make a big difference. A lot of the qualitative research that is out there highlights the, the fear of withdrawal symptoms and how unpleasant those withdrawal symptoms are as a reason for avoiding seeking care. Uh, patients don't want to experience that extreme feeling of discomfort and all that goes with it. You know, there's a lot of stigma around those symptoms and, oh, well, you don't die that well, you wish you were. They're awful. And giving naloxone like that can plunge somebody deep into those ranges of withdrawal. So I think something that we'll probably see in EMS education and in the industry is this emphasis on actually quantifying withdrawal symptoms. There's a great scale out there called the COWS, the Clinical Opioid Withdrawal Scale. So ways to measure how much uh, withdrawal symptoms we're experiencing as the patient and then using these innovative treatments at the point of care. And Dr. Miramontes put the conclusion of this article in the chat around how having that available to ease those symptoms and focus on symptom management at that point is more likely to lead patients into that long-term long recovery care than just transports the emergency department, leaving the patient in extreme discomfort. And we know that they'll be released shortly thereafter uh, without any relief. So this is an area where I think we will see some innovation in the next few years and more systems adopting this and, and building it into EMS education also becomes a really important point. And Michael, I'm sure you can comment on that. And where we're pivoting in terms of how we release the stigma and how we talk about getting true care for patients. Absolutely. In fact, I was just thinking the this first table just at a glance makes me feel happy that, again, something like 96% of a true opioid overdoses, the, this acute setting, are getting opioids or are, are getting naloxone and reversing that so the patient can breathe, which we know is a life-saving intervention. So that makes me feel good on the initial education side because I think that's where we really instill that mindset. Um, but then the, on the continuing education side, I keep thinking to myself, okay, we have to be, we, we know burnout is linked to repetitive calls for repetitive patients when the provider doesn't feel like there's a good outcome for them to care for their patient. Well, here we're seeing these patients likely are, I would imagine these patients are sometimes repeat patients, that's leading to the burnout. If I know there's something out here like Suboxone that I can implement into my system that will not only help the patient, but the long-term consequences, it'll probably help my providers as well, reduce rates of burnout, reduce people leaving the workforce. As a continuing education provider, that's where I want to go and say, hey, we know not every naloxone patient is going to wake up aggressive and agitated. We've made it through that point. Now we're waking people up 
people up in the pre-hospital setting or comfortable if they want to return to their living situation um, after receiving naloxone. But we can do better. We have to do better for these patients. And again, beyond just the patient care, it has long-term consequences for our departments as well. Um, and I think there's a huge benefit in this study only sort of scratches the surface and begins us down that pathway. And if I could just add in a comment that um, William Schneiderman uh, just commented in. Thanks for your discussion as far as uh, New Hampshire EMS providers. And he was just mentioning how some EMS providers in New Hampshire, and this is definitely applies to the entire country, uh, with opioid overdose patients maybe are just focusing on administering Narcan and not necessarily starting with those fundamental ABCs, you know, managing that airway, ventilating the patient, um, and focusing on those life-saving measures uh, in addition and as a priority rather than just Narcan. And this is something that, again, looking at this figure right here in figure four, we can see that uh, most of these patients aren't receiving Narcan. Um, so kind of, or sorry, most of these patients are receiving Narcan, but still a uh, large percentage of them are not. So kind of nice to see that not just everyone and their mother were thinking, hey, they have opioids, we're slamming them with Narcan. So nice to see that. But at the same time, I definitely agree with your point, William, and thank you for bringing that up. That's something I also see as an EMS educator that such uh, a lot of EMS providers are quick to discuss and to mention and to rush to Narcan without addressing those priorities of the ABCs. And this paper can just shows us that a lot of these cases, or most of these cases, we can intervene. They're in that acute overdose stack where acute, acute overdose um, category where we can help them. Uh, they wouldn't survive without us and we can help them, but we have to start with those fundamentals, the ABCs. So thank you. Absolutely agree. You know, we get focused on one treatment and one catch-all, but it's a really complex system and we have to treat it as such and still use that critical thinking along the way. So I think that's a great point there. I know we're nearing the end of the time flies, but there are a couple more points that I'd like us to think about as a group here. And, and one of them is this study sets up a lot of really important things and it's laid out in such a way that it can be repeated, which is great. But there's a really good point on how having these distinct categories allows us for thinking about combining data sources in different ways to get that full view. And Jeff, you mentioned early on that when patient is dead on arrival and EMS might get canceled en route, perhaps that's not going to be in our data source, but start thinking about, well, where can we combine data sources at the state and at the local levels? Is there information from the coroner that we can be using to, to paint a more complete picture here? Uh, and the authors mentioned this, and it's very interesting about linking in hospital outcome data. And that's not yet routine in EMS. It's becoming more and more common. There's more and more software that's enabling this to happen automatically and, and in near real time instead of waiting for it after the effects. But that's another key point of this study to, to pick out is that we've transported the patient now with one of these events in one of these categories. Uh, we need to know what happens to those patients afterwards. And probably though this wasn't part of the discussion, but I would argue that it needs to be in our, in our, at least in the back of our minds is how do we not just link to that immediate encounter for that episode of care, but get a holistic view on linking for that patient across encounters uh, to the point of 
We know that patients who have one overdose event are at risk for another one. Uh, so being able to track those patients across their clinical encounters and offering connections with true recovery resources is going to be an even bigger point. And I'm curious if any of you all had any thoughts on you know, other data sources or how else we might combine data to get a more holistic view of patients who are experiencing opioid-related events. I thought uh, I think that's spot on, Remley, in terms of where we can go in the future. The the authors actually cited this. They they cited another another research article that looked at almost the exact same time period that this one did. Um, and in this study in the same area in Massachusetts, said for women had um, that met the same criteria for naloxone administration had an 18% lower odds ratio of receiving naloxone for, than men. I think there's much more we can do in the area of those acute overdoses and recognizing who's getting naloxone, who's not getting naloxone to ensure that we're representing our entire communities um, and, the enti and every patient that's going to overdose. So I think there's a very there's something you could take here and, and, and replicate or move forward with the same data set and start looking at some of the demographic factors that we know do impact medication administration. That's a key point to call out. And I think it's true, not just of this study. So that particular study that was mentioned in the discussion was actually included in some of the NAMSP scoping reviews that were just published. And we had a special edition podcast on that around different care being received by patients and not necessarily malicious intent or over outward bias, but our systems are set up to create this biased care. And so we need to think about how can we go upstream and change our systems to get different results. This study, again, gives us a framework for doing that, because if we lumped everything together, we might not see that, hey, there are differences in how care is being delivered by patient gender. Uh, but when we're able to split out into these distinct categories, we're better able to study disparities and not just measure them. I love to say you can't fatten the cow by weighing it, but by getting into the root causes around it, right? So we can go upstream and say, all right, it seems that women are less likely to get naloxone, but why is that? Is it that we're less likely to suspect an opioid-related event in a patient who's female? Or is there something else going on that there's hesitation by bystanders or whatever it may be? In the case of CPR, we have seen there's a lot of hesitation to act and, and to help when the patient is a female. So this study actually sets up for so many more studies around how can we look at equity in healthcare, especially equity around a condition that has a lot of stigma attached to it. Those are all really good points and definitely agree that uh, we need to address these equity issues. And I think that um, best to address these on scene right there in the moment. But what this study also does is it can really help with that follow-up. We talked about that follow-up piece. Um, and I know there are a number of EMS systems around the country and they will proactively try to follow up with patients who weren't ultimately transported, but did get Narcan on scene, for example. So trying to make sure that hey, they might go back the following day and give them Narcan so that hey, they may have used this on scene so that they can have Narcan should they overdose again and maybe provide education on that. But a lot of those um, follow-up measures are very crude and again, often focused strictly on Narcan administration, and especially if there are disparities in the administration of naloxone, then we're going to be seeing disparities in those follow-ups as well. So looking at this and seeing that over a third of these cases that were picked up that are opioid-related incidents didn't receive any Narcan, yet they were still picked up um, through this algorithm, 
I think if this is something that could be applied to other EMS systems can help broaden that lens and follow up with more patients who maybe didn't get Narcan from EMS or maybe didn't need it, but definitely still need help and need follow-up um, and are still at high risk of overdose. So I think applying this um, and uh, taking this into other systems is excellent and definitely appreciate that the authors shared their work. They have, uh, I think, 12 pages of supplemental appendices where they showed exactly the criteria that they used to find all those. So it's great when people do amazing research, but even better when they share how they did it so it can be replicated. So it was definitely awesome to see that they shared this so other EMS systems can bring this home. I'd like to do a little extrapolation on their others. I think there's some opportunity there. It says uh, the, the sort of supplement details that is everything from behavioral health emergencies, suicidal ideations, things like that. Um, and yet 25, 24% of them got naloxone. Um, I, I think there is a lot of myths out there on patients that are suffering from an opioid overdose. We've seen this on some body cam footage before in the past, where it looks more like a panic attack and we're administering just dose after dose of Narcan. That only perpetuates a problem and a stigma. So looking into that and saying, why, what was the patient and was there a real need for naloxone there? Or is there a real need for some continued education, some training on who falls into that category? And are we giving naloxone because we think something might get worse? Um, it really does not have those same benefits in, in, before the patient has a decrease in respiratory drive. So um, I'd be very interested to extrapolate that a little bit more. And I hope the authors do some work in that area because I'd be very interested to read it. I agree. And I, I think it speaks to how now the research is done. Now it's our job to take it and apply where it makes sense. And a couple of things that we've highlighted in this discussion are, well, maybe it's time to review our protocols on naloxone administration and think about, uh, do our protocols reflect current evidence in terms of we shouldn't just be giving massive doses of naloxone for patients with slight respiratory depression uh, and think about the effects that we're going to have on the patient in terms of withdrawal symptoms. Uh, and then consider whether or not it's time to add another tool to our toolkit in terms of making that bridge for the patient to get to recovery and things like buprenorphine when it's appropriate and when we can partner with the right resources locally. Uh, so, And then back to the education perspective, getting this incorporated in early initial as well as continuing education to think about the science is evolving and you know we need to be ready to adapt to that change. And this study gives us a different framework for thinking about opioid related encounters and how we can you know, study these and make a difference when it comes to uh, inequities in care. And now I know that we're, we're in the last few minutes here, so I want to turn it to any panelists who have other thoughts on the results that we need to look at before we can go around with our last thoughts and, and key takeaway that we got from this. Hearing none, last opportunity. All right, so let's go ahead and, and wrap up with you know quick takeaways in terms of what we grabbed from this and what we think should be next. Uh, so I will go ahead and start with, Tony, you're next on my list. Yeah, so I think that this was great because not only were we able to categorize, the authors were able to categorize um, different types of opioid-related incidents, they made a note to say that this is um, a way to make sure that these these patients in the future can 
be filtered into other care pathways, right? Because not everyone needs to get go to the emergency department. Um, and frankly, some of these folks, if we can get them into, into rehab facilities and the like, um, we can impact their long-term outcomes. So I think this really, this study is, is a great step in that direction to kind of um, be able to to find the right the right care for these for the right patient at the right time. Absolutely. And Michael, you're next. Thanks. Uh, great job to the authors. I think any study that you can recreate and advance this practice is great. This is a study that could very well be recreated by um, just about any state that has this data set or agency that has this data set. I appreciate that they involved EMTs and paramedics in their study and writing their study and reviewing their software. Um, again, as Jeff shared, bringing EMS to the forefront. So um, really a top-notch study. Absolutely agree with you on that. And Jeff? I would definitely echo everything that was said. I mean, kudos to the authors on this excellent study and great use of EMS data. Uh, I think this is something that this is super timely. I mean, we have this data as soon as that PCR is submitted, unlike the state mortality data, which can take several years to show up and it's super delayed. We can see exactly where these opioid-related incidents are happening and get this information in close to real time. So I think this is a great surveillance tool, something that can be used by EMS agencies as well as public health uh, departments, state level or municipal or national public health departments to try to get a better understanding of what we're dealing with as EMS providers so that we can bring in those resources to target and hopefully prevent these uh, cases from worsening. Absolutely. And I'll agree with that wholeheartedly as well. This study did a great job at bringing EMS data to the forefront of a public health conversation and shows just another way that EMS data really makes a difference. Uh, I also would like to congratulate the authors on all of the work that went into creating and developing this algorithm and then validating it in a real world data set. That's not an easy lift at all. And they did a really fantastic job at not just doing the work itself, but describing it in such a way that somebody else can replicate it in their own system at the local level. And so that's the key takeaway for me is to use this, apply it, see what our own local data looks like, revisit protocols as needed, and think about the evolving evidence on this topic. Uh, and with that, I have the very unpopular task of carrying us out. But before I do, I want to remind everyone that we do have the Clinical Education Research Journal Club podcast, which will be Friday, April 28th. And then we will be back here with the Clinical Podcast Journal Club on the second Monday of the month, which will be May 8th. So thank you to all of our panelists again for being here. And thank you to our audience members. Really appreciate all of the great participation and look forward to another great discussion next time. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey, and ESO, 
dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data.